Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that we sang that song this morning because it reminds us of a scriptural truth, and that is this, that who we are precedes who we are becoming. In other words, in other words, being in Christ or belonging to Christ precedes becoming more like Christ. And this is a very important scriptural principle that we find throughout the Bible. And it's really easy to kind of invert Um, how we feel about life and how we feel about family and how we feel about relationships and we kind of get the cart before the horse and we begin to judge life based upon things like our emotions first rather than who we are in Christ. Back Uh, when I was in high school, my friend Matt, uh, who was an amazing drummer, amazing musician, a good friend of mine, he introduced me to a genre of music that I have grown to know and love, and that is the oldies, right? Especially like the 50s and the 60s and the 70s of music. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I managed to quote from Frank Sinatra, and that was actually in the pregame show of the Super Bowl. Didn't plan that. Today, we'll see where this pops up later. Uh, but there's a song that was written and recorded in 1964 by a group called The Right brothers. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. It starts with, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there is no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, baby, but baby, I know it. And he breaks down the song, you've lost that love and feel. You know what I mean? I won't sing it for you. <clears throat> you've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that loving feeling. You've lost that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. That's my very bad rendition because I am not one of the Righteous Brothers band. So, um, but, but I love this song. Like, it's just a fun song to listen to. And it tells a story about how a relationship between a guy and a gal once felt something and now it just does it. And, and actually, you come to the end of the song, he says, bring back that love and feeling. And, and it's going to this idea that was prominent throughout all of time, and especially in the 60s, of what do we feel here about our relationship? And the reality is, is a lot of times our relationships, whether they're romantic relationships with a spouse or um, just friend relationships or relationships with your kids or relationships with people at church, you go, man, I've lost that love and feeling. And <clears throat> as we think about losing that love and feeling, feelings are one of those things that are the caboose on the train. And a lot of times we base reality off of them, but they really don't give us a good judge of reality many, many times. When we talk about family, when we look at this story that happens in the beginning of Genesis, we're introduced to Adam, we're introduced to Eve. They're wedded together in covenant ceremony by God. In fact, here's the way it says it. We've read this before, but in Genesis 2, you can turn in your Bibles um, there if you'd like. In Genesis 2, you have this great betrothal at the end of it. In verse 22, it says, the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And they both were naked and they felt no shame. And then, of course, as Pastor Tom taught through Genesis 3 last week, we find out that shame enters the story. Adam and Eve take of the fruit. They choose to trust their own wisdom, their own knowledge. They choose to, tr to define right and wrong for themselves. And in doing so, God comes to them in the cool of the day and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we're hiding. And God says, well, why are you hiding? He says, well, we're naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? And then Adam says, well, it's the woman you gave me. And the woman says, that serpent And the serpent gets cursed, the ground gets cursed, childbirth becomes hard, work becomes hard, and what we have entered into in just a few verses here in the beginning of Genesis 
of this whole story is Adam blame shifts in Genesis 3.12, Eve blame shifts in Genesis 3.13, God curses the serpent in Genesis 3.14, women's labor pains are intensified in verse 16, and it says here that her desire, and this is not necessarily an emotional desire, but a psychological desire to dominate, he says, will be for your husband, and yet your husband will rule or have mastery over her, and man's work in verses 17 through 19 has toiled and you get shame and you get sin and you get all this stuff entered into the story. And the question then becomes, what does it mean then for us to be the image bearers of God in the world today? What does it mean for us to say, I belong to the Lord, I am not my own, and that we want to honor God with all of our bodies, with all of our minds, with all of our hearts. And, and where do we honor God? I, I entitled this morning's sermon, Miniature Temples, <clears throat> because as Brian read from 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? And, and this idea of temple kind of finds its way all throughout the scripture. The book of Genesis, in my view, was originally written by God through Moses, originally to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. So one of the scenes that they would have known and would have saw, seen a lot in Egypt were the scene of temples. They knew what a temple was because Egypt is an incredibly religious place. There's all sorts of polytheism. In other words, there's worship of many gods going on there. This is one ancient temple. There's actually three different areas within this temple. You have the outer courts, you move towards the closer to the inner courts, and you come into the Holy of Holies. Um, and so when... Israel is being led out of Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness. They know what it means to go into a temple and to worship whatever God is in that temple. They, they, they've seen this over and over. And one of the things that God is wanting to teach them is, is that he alone is the only true God, and that he alone is worthy of their worship. And so as he calls them out and redeems them from slavery in Egypt, he gives them the picture of a sanctuary. In fact, there's sanctuary language going on in Genesis 1 and 2 as it describes this garden that God creates. And, and the idea behind sanctuary is not just a building. It's not just a space. It's about meeting with God. It, it's about having a, an intimate relationship with the Holy One. Because, of course, the closer you come into the sanctuary, the closer you get to where the presence of God resided. I love the way that Dr. Gordon Wenham um, describes this. He says, the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. So as Israel's hearing the story about the creation of the world, and they hear the story about the introduction of sin, they're given this picture that God's intended desire for them is to worship Him, to be in relationship with Him. And God plants this so much in their actual existence that He says, I want you to build for me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. And so He has them build a tabernacle. This tabernacle, this is a recreation of it that you can find over in Israel. <clears throat> when we were there, it was in Timna Park. I assume it's still there right now. I'm not sure about that, but um, you can walk into this and you can see not only the outer courts here and you can see um, the sacrificial altar. You can walk into the actual sanctuary part here that's divided into a couple of sections. You go into the holy place, you go into the most holy place, and you can see the replicas of all this. But back when Israel... <clears throat> is in the land, back when this was first introduced to them by God and they build it, there were certain sections where you could not go into because the holiness of God did not allow you to pass. In fact, the Holy of Holies was the place where only the high priest in Israel could go, and he could only go once a year as part of the Day of Atonement sacrifice that we find in the Scripture. But God planted himself in the midst of his people, because he wanted them to see that while there is still a, a, a sin that separates them from him, that God is constantly moving towards his people. And in fact, Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb that once and for all does away with sacrifices, that, that allows us 
you and I to enter in to God's presence with confidence. In fact, that's why it says in the New Testament, you are temples of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells. So back in this time, God says to Israel, build for me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. And through Jesus, he says, I actually want to come and I want to take up residence within you. So that where you walk, where you live, where you work, where you play, become the lived out expression of what it means for you to be my miniature temple in the world. One of the greatest places that this is lived out, there's many places it's lived out, but one of the greatest places that this is lived out in our world is within the home. Um, there's, <coughs> there's a um, scholar by the name of Dr. Marv Wilson, and he has a great understanding of Jewish history, history and Jewish culture, and he wrote a book called Our Father Abraham. And one of the things he describes in Our Father Abraham is that the Jewish people look at the family as what they call the mikdash me'ot, and that means the small sanctuary. So, so the Jewish people understood what it meant to have a tabernacle. The tabernacle eventually becomes the sanctuary or, or the, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, in AD 70, and there's other times within history, um, the Jewish people don't have access to a functioning temple. And so what became kind of the central hub of Jewish thought and Jewish life and, and, and Jewish faith becomes the home, the small sanctuary. He, here's the way he describes it. <coughs> he says, as a small sanctuary, the rabbis taught that the home, like the temple, was to be set aside for special purposes. These included the worship of God, in other words, it becomes a house of prayer, the learning of Torah, a house of study, and the serving of community needs, or a house of assembly. He says, just as the Shekinah, the abiding presence of God, he says, filled the temple, and as light, a symbol of the divine brightened the holy place through the menorah, which is a seven-branch lampstand. So each home, he says, was to reflect God's glory through prayer and praise. He's saying that while there is a temple at certain points, certain points within Jewish history where people would go to worship, and, and then the synagogue arose, and that became a place where people could go pray and study. He's saying the central part of the, the religious life of God's people is the home. It's this small sanctuary, small in size. But, but really, if we think about all the things that happen in our world, it can be really daunting to say, how do we affect the culture that is out there? And I think Dr. Marv would say, you begin at you begin at home. You begin within your sphere of influence that God has given you, and you allow and you purpose your family, your home, your life, and the lives of those in your midst to be the light that shines in the darkness. In fact, he goes on to say this. <clears throat> he says, the dinner table of the home became, as it were, the altar of the temple. Here is the origin of the family altar. He says, eating was to be more than a physical function. It was to be a spiritual instrument of religious service. Seen as an altar, the table was also to be consecrated. It was to be a place where more than food was to be passed. It was also to be set apart that words of Torah, words of the scripture might be exchanged for one does not live by bread alone. And as Jesus goes on to finish that, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is a different way of thinking about our homes. A very, very different way. Um, it was mentioned earlier <coughs> by Katrina. Um, when they were talking about hospitality this week, um, in Eastern cultures, one of the first things that is taught to kids is invite the guest into your home. In fact, when we were over in the Middle East several years ago, we went to a Bedouin's tent. And, and to be invited into someone's tent means that they take upon themselves responsibility for you. So the way it was explained to us is that if someone were to come and attack this tent, the family of that tent who invited us to come and to sit down they would fight to the end in order to protect those who came underneath their care. 
We see this in the scriptures, for example, um, with people like Abraham. Abraham uh, entreats or he invites into his home three men and he, he provides food for them and, and he provides hospitality. He encourages them to stay a while. Even Lot, who's living in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, a very, very wicked place in ancient time, he invites these two men to come in and he does that even to the extent of bringing harm to his family because there's such a, a care for the person who is within your midst because they understood that the family, that, that the home was not just a place to be walled off from society, but was a place to be a, a service or a ministry to those around. Think about your table right now. Th think about your kitchen table. Think about the conversations that take place there. How would you describe the conversations that exist and take place at your kitchen table? And, and I say this knowing <clears throat> that one of, one of my sometimes, may, maybe many times failings is like, I, we get to the end of the meal and I'm all of a sudden up and I'm trying to clean the dishes. I did this yesterday. We, we have a tradition um, that we practice fairly often in our house where we make scones on Saturday morning. And we have scones and we have tea. And before I know it yesterday, I'm just up, I'm dishes in, like next thing, like next thing clockwork. And I was thinking about it later last night, I was going, Man, what, what would have happened if I just slowed down and had recognized that this isn't just a place in which to consume food. It's a place, in the words of Dr. Marv, that is set apart, that the words of the scriptures might be exchanged, that we might know as a family, that we might express to our community that... that Man doesn't live by bread alone. We do live by bread. But we don't live by bread alone. I love bread. Um, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It really causes us to look at our homes very differently. Last year, we celebrated Passover together with our church family. Here's a picture from it. We're going to be doing that again in April uh, on, on the first day of Passover for this year. And one of the things that I, I love about this picture is that you see a whole bunch of people gathered around a table and you see a whole bunch of food. What was expressed was not just the consumption of a meal, though the meal was really good. What, what was exchanged and what was shared between us was a celebration of who God is and what God has done through Jesus Christ to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. I, I, I just love this picture that exists for the table. And, and it causes us, and it should cause us, to really think about our homes. How would you describe your home? Is it a walled out fortress? It, 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 is it lifeless and empty? Is it a place where criticism or, or where words come that, that just create um, expectations that aren't rooted in the scriptures or rooted in the grace of God? Is your home a place that is open and welcoming? Is it a place where people feel like they belong regardless of who they are? Is it a place where, where we learn to practice? And I say that intentionally because it's not always easy, right? We learn to practice gracious and loving relationships that encourage one another to become more like Jesus. Every one of us comes from a different background. I grew up in a family in which <clears throat> um, at any point in time I could show up at home and we would have no idea who would be there for dinner. Like usually, um, because my mom worked at a college on the weekend after church, it was not uncommon to be like, oh, hey, my name's Jeremy, who are you? Okay, you must go to the school where my mom teaches, right? That kind of stuff. Some homes are just naturally a little more open and some homes are a little bit kind of naturally more closed. Um, but the idea that I want to express to you here is that our homes become the central place for God's love and God's grace to be practiced and to be experienced by one another as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, as kids, but not just within those relationships, within the broader context. And, and really, our homes are oftentimes the places where we are more truly us. And so when you experience me, for example, in my home, you might get just a slightly different variation because I'm a little more comfortable there, right? And maybe that's the same for you as well. I like to be consistent wherever I'm at, but there's certain areas where you're like, yeah, if you know what I do at home, you know that hopefully it doesn't 
conflict with what I do anywhere else. But our homes are these places that are areas of, of ministry because it's where our lives are lived for the glory of God. Where, where we're lived because we are not our own. We belong to him. So <clears throat> in the time we have remaining, I'd like to look at a couple of biblical principles that come from Ephesians chapter 5 about what it means to have homes that are centered around God's design for the family. So if you would, turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have one and you want to take it with you, it's yours. It's our gift. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5 is, is part of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And what he is saying throughout the um, narrative of Ephesians is, here's who you once were. You were separated from God. You were alienated. Now God has brought you into his family. And now as a result of what Christ has done in your life, as a result of you becoming a new person, he says in verse um, 1 and 2 of chapter 5, he, he sets a framework for this application with this. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And he says, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. A couple things I want you to note here before we jump down to um, a later verse. When Paul begins his application, he wants to remind the believers who they are. So he gives them two commands here. He says, be imitators of God. Like, let your life become that which looks like God. But he says, as dearly loved children, because he wants them to never forget who they are. Because when we forget who we are, we can quickly go into, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to, I need to, God, ugh. You, you, we, we become people who become self-made and we become people who are self-powered. But he says, I want you to know who you are. You are dearly loved children. He says, walk in love. But he qualifies this. How do we walk in love? As the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us. So when he talks about love here, what he's talking about is not a feeling. He's not talking about losing a loving feeling. He's saying, I want you to know how much I have loved you. I want you to know that the Messiah gave his life for you, a sacrificial, fragrant offering to God, such that he has redeemed you by his grace and you've become his child through faith and trust in him. So he wants them to start with, here's who you are. Now, here's how I want you to walk. And the reason that matters is because we can only love by knowing how much we are loved. Here's the way it says it. I think it's in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. We cannot walk in love without having God's help and God's power to do that. And he's going to say a couple things about love here. But when we think about love, this is my working definition of love. You've probably heard this before from me. Love is a decision. It's an act of the will to bring to bear all of heaven's resources to meet someone's needs without expecting anything in return. So we're not talking about loving feeling. We're talking about loving as a decision, as an act of selflessness. And that only begins by understanding that this is how God has loved us. Jesus gave his life for us, an act of selfless decision upon his part for us. <clears throat> That's the origination, the, the beginning of what love is. So when we go now to look about how we are to live this way in the Christian life, he is, he is going to say, walk in love as the Messiah loved us and gave himself for us. And, and he's actually going to say, look down with me, please, at verse 18. He's going to say, um, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. He says, but be filled by the Spirit. This filled by the Spirit here, filled is an interesting word. It, it means to, um, to, to fill or it means to, um, to, to complete or to fulfill is kind of the, the definition of the word. It's a word that is used, and it's, when it's used in talking with people, the means of... Filling is always through God. 
And so then you have, in verses 19 through 21, you have indicators of what it means to be filled. That you're speaking to one another in, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You're singing, you're making music from your heart to the Lord. You're giving thanks for everything to God in the name of our Father. And he says, submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. And so he's saying, within the church family, this is what this looks like. To be filled looks like this. And it means that you're submitting to one another. This word for submit here, um, as it says, submit to one another, he's talking to the church family, and he's saying submit, and submit here is a voluntary, I give up my rights to serve you. That, that's the idea. And so then he goes to talk specifically about the household. You know, so he's talking about the church. Now he's going to go to zoom in into the house. And he says this, he says, wives, Voluntarily submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. So when he begins to say, here's what it means to be imitators of God. Here's what it means to walk in love. The command to the wife within the marriage relationship is, wives, voluntarily submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. I add voluntarily there because sometimes the word submit in the Western context has a bad connotation. In the original idea here, it means to voluntarily submit yourselves. In other words, it is something that you, as a wife, if you're married, you choose to do. You have to choose to do. Submission is not something that can be forced, but it's something that God calls you to as a wife. To submit is a, is a hard thing because it means to, to, to place yourself, number one, under the lordship of Christ, and number two, under the leadership of your husband. <clears throat> Submission does not mean inferiority. In fact, it is a voluntarily yielding in love to the leadership of your husband. And, and Paul describes this here by talking about how the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. So there's a mixed metaphor going on here. He's talking about the family, but he's also talking about how Jesus Christ relates to his church. And he's saying, as a church, you are to submit to the Lord in everything. And, and, and then he's kind of mixing this metaphor, this marriage metaphor, talking about wives. You voluntarily yield yourself <coughs> to your husband's leadership within the home. Submission, here's, what it, here's, here's some ways it can look. It looks like respecting your husband and his God-given role to spiritually lead your family. If we think back, if we think back to Genesis 3, where um, God tells Eve, he's, he's going to say, you are, I want to make sure I get the phrasing right, in Genesis 2, sorry, Genesis 3, he says, your desire, and I understand that desire there to, to be a desire for control. This is descriptive of what happens because of the fall. Will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He's, he's, he's saying here, this is the opposite way of life underneath the fall. Life that is governed by the fall is is one in which there's a desire for ruling and there's a desire for control. And he's saying to the wife, he's saying, your desire in Christ is to give up the need to control, to yield and submit your life to God and to yield and submit to the leadership of your husband. That's what he's saying here. Submit looks like, submission looks like respecting your husband, his God-given role. I read this, uh, but bears repeating. And his God-given role to spiritually lead your family. It looks like being careful about how you talk about him in public, honestly and co clearly communicating about matters within your home and your relationship. It does not resemble coercion. It doesn't resemble publicly challenging leadership or gossiping about him. This is the contrast with Genesis 3 and the, the friction that we see there. And it's fair to ask, is there a point at which wives are called not to submit? And I would say yes, when they're asked to do anything that goes against the clear teaching of God's word. Because remember, they're to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the first submission is to the Lord. We're going to get to the guys here in just a minute. And the amazing thing 
is that even if a spouse is in a relationship with someone who's not a believer, 1 Peter 3 says that, that, we're, that you're to seek to win them to Christ by the example of your conduct. In other words, this voluntary submission and service and, and, and love and care becomes a way that you model God's grace within the home, even to a spouse who may be unbelieving or maybe to other family who is unbelieving in your midst. That's what he says to wives. Now, he spends just a couple verses there talking about wives. He spends a whole lot more time talking about husbands. So here we go, guys. Um, in verses 25 through 33, and he's also in, engaging some of, uh, some of the church talking here as well, he says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, I want you to let that sink in for us for just a minute. Love your wives. I've already said that, that love is, is a decision. It's not a feeling. It's an act of the will to bring to bear all the resources God has given you to meet the needs of your spouse, to meet the needs of your family without expecting anything in return. So whereas the wife is called to submit to her husband as to the Lord, husbands, we're actually called to something that without God's help is frankly impossible, and that's true for, for, for wives as well, but, but to love our wives as Christ loved the church, think about how Jesus loved the church. When we were at our worst, Jesus said, I'll lay down my life for you. When we did nothing to deserve his love, Jesus said, I will love you even the same. Guys, let that sink in. Because a lot of times we say, oh, I've lost that loving feeling. And, and frankly, loving doesn't begin with a feeling. It begins with a by faith choice to submit ourselves to God and a by faith choice to put the needs of our families before ourselves. I, I wish I could tell you that I've got this one figured out. <laughs> I can't, just ask my spouse. She, she'll probably be gracious and not tell you, but can, I could just think of all the different times over the last week where I wanted what I wanted, or I had a plan in my mind and I was going to pursue that plan. And, and it probably didn't actually take into consideration what does it mean for me to love my family well now? What, what does it mean for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to voluntarily lay myself down for her? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The spiritual force here, the spiritual responsibility is given to the husbands. And in a world where biblical manhood is under attack, Paul is calling husbands, he's calling, he's calling us to sacrificially love our wives and to love our families. Husbands, this does not mean passivity. Being passive is sometimes something that's very easy for us to slip into. We get tired, we get distracted. We, we, we might find more success in the marketplace or we might find more success in personal hobbies or interests God is calling us to active engagement in our families. Active engagement in our families. Our wives, our families, our churches, and our communities need us to not be passive in our spiritual life. And I want to encourage you with this. Because it may be that today you're struggling with being passive. And I want to encourage you today, right now, right this minute, you can go to God and say, God, I, I've been passive. And God will say, I know. And you can yield your life to God. You can give your life to God. You can say, God, I, I, I don't know how to love my wife the way you want me to. And God will say, I know, but I want to show you. Guys, the way that God begins to show us how to love our wives and how to love our families begins with our lives being yielded to God. 
It begins with an honest look at our time and our priorities and an honest look at the things in, that we find valuable. A lot of the, the Western world finds valuable today entertainment. We find valuable work, and work is not a bad thing, but work can become an idol, entertainment can become an idol, hobbies can become an idol. Even the, the financial provision for our families can become an idol when it steps in the way of the person that God wants to shape you and I into as dads and as husbands. And by the way, if you're a young person here, maybe you're not married, maybe you're single, you're looking to maybe at one point in time, maybe that becomes it. Maybe that becomes a reality for you. Guys, the way that you begin to engage in that right here and right now is you give yourself to God and you let your relationship with God become the most important thing that drives every part of your life. That's what God is calling you and I into today. God has designed husbands to act as a head. In other words, to, to, to be a source of 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 encouragement, to, 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 to give responsibility and, and guidance in God's love and God's truth to our families. And the, the, the reality is, is that we will prioritize the things that matter most. One of my friends likes to say, we all have 24 hours in one day. Like, like you have it. As, as long as God gives you breath, you have 24 hours in a day. What describes how you've intentioned that time? Do our family priorities reflect the things that matter most? Do we understand the will of God for our families and for our lives? Guys, the picture here is that God wants us to take the lead in serving our families. This doesn't necessarily mean that, that we are able to give them everything they want, but it means that we have the conversations that need to be had in the way that they need to be had. In other words, guys, we become the, the chief prayers. We become the chief Bible teachers. We become the chief encouragers in our homes. We, we become the ones who seek to bring reconciliation where there is fracture. We become the ones who, with God's help, step into hard situations and we say, you know what? Here's what I know. You are loved by God and God is not finished with you yet. You might be saying that to your spouse. You might be saying that to a, a kid. You might be saying that to a neighbor person. Like you, like you become, through God's help, through yielding to his spirit, the person through whom God uses you to intercede. God uses you to encourage. God uses you to teach. You become partners. We become partners with our spouses in this work. But the picture here is, is guys, it begins with us. This kind of love is an incredible thing. Um, and this kind of way of living is impossible in the natural. It, right? it, it'd be really easy for me to just go out and do this. But, but the reality is, is, you and I cannot do this in the natural. We, we can't do this in our own strength. We have to only, we can only do this as we are connected to Christ. Guys, I guess here's the way I'd probably say it, is that our, our drive, and this is actually true for gals as well, um, but guys, our, our purpose in life is to connect spiritually with our Heavenly Father, to know who He is, to know how He sees us, and to allow our relationship with Him to be that which waters and, and, and brings encouragement to our families and to the lives of the people within our, in our midst. Um, my family and I flew out to Arizona this last week <clears throat> and, uh, to visit some family. It was gloriously sunny out there, and um, I hope it was here too. Um, as we flew, we got the obligatory, um, you know, uh, face mask, not face mask, but like oxygen mask um, conversation. And I've heard it so many times, I don't even pay attention half the time, which is probably not a good thing. But, but it's one of those things like, Take the oxygen mask, and when it, de when it comes down from the ceiling, first attach it to your face, you know, they're doing all this thing, and then help someone next to you. This is, this is a helpful analogy for me, because it reminds me, before I can be of spiritual help to someone else, I have to have my oxygen mask on, right? In, in the flying world, you attach yours first, and then you can help someone else. In other words, guys, gals, 
the people God has placed within our midst, the degree to which we can help them is the degree to which we are surrendered and we are walking in relationship with the Lord. So let me ask you guys, where's your relationship at? Like, just think about that for a moment. You as a miniature temple of the Holy Spirit, how would you describe your relationship with God today? We're not done. Uh, 6.4, in Ephesians 6.4, he gives a special command to fathers, and I understand this uh, to some extent. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, <laughs> but bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. There's a great encouragement there, because he's just talked to kids, which we'll talk to kids in just a minute briefly. But as he talks to kids, he says, hey, I want you to know that, dads, the way in which you encourage your kids is to bring them up, not with anger, but in the instruction and training of the Lord. And, and there may be some of us here this morning that maybe have walked in and anger's been a part of our life and, and that needs to be released to God this morning. Kids, it says here, children, obey your parents as you would the Lord because this is right. I, I love how he qualifies this too. Obey your parents, why? As you would the Lord. In, in other words, kids, your first job, your, 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 first, um, your first priority is to be yielded to God. And as you yield to God, God is gonna ask you to, to listen, to obey your parents. And the word here for children is, is primarily in context, I think describing kids who are living within the context of the household relationship. It's not referring to a 35-year-old who lives outside of the house from his parents. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. But, but there's a reason that's given here. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. And in fact, um, here there's actually a promise of blessing. Um, and he ties this to... Um, to Exodus, on your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well for you and that you may have a long life in the land. Kids, in the best of circumstances, your parents want what is best for you. That's why Paul gives this command. It, like I said with um, talking about the submission of wives to husbands, is there a qualification here? Are there limits on obedience? And the answer is yes. And kids, here's where it is. If you're asked to do something that disobeys God, we have to obey God rather than men. So, think about your home for a minute. Have you lost that loving feeling? <laughs> you want to bring back that loving feeling. It's helpful to know, as I've said before, that feelings are the top layer of things. In fact, here's a, a, a biblical pattern for the home. It begins with facts, right? It begins with God's revealed revelation about who He is, about us and who we are and about the world. To get back <coughs> to the practice of unconditional love within our homes, it, it begins by saying, God, what is true about you? What is true about me? What is true about my family? What is true about the world? It moves there from saying, God, here's what you've said is true. I'm going to walk by faith. Faith is believing and acting in accordance with what God says is true. Um, when God, when Jesus says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He's giving that command um, to, uh, to a group of people who didn't always love one another, right? He, he's not saying, and here's the easy way to live. He's saying, here's the yielded way to live. He, here's the way to live in, in a way that is so, absolutely dependent upon me living through you. When we know what's true, when we by faith walk in a way that is true by the power of the Holy Spirit, what often follows in due time are the emotions that come with trusting God. The emotions of, God, you were pleased with that. God, may, maybe they didn't receive it this way or they didn't take it that way, but God, I know that I honored you because in my speech, I honored them. I believe God is calling us and calling our families 
to be radically countercultural in the world in which we live. And I want to end here with one other Jewish picture. <coughs> in Jewish weddings, one of the things that is practiced uh, is there, there's, a, um, th there's a, a lifting up ceremony. Um, and, and it's where the people take the bride and they take the groom and they're seated in chairs and they lift up these chairs. And I love the way that Dr. Marv Wilson describes this in his book, Our Father Abraham. He says it this way. He says, in Judaism, the second part of the marriage ceremony, which is which consummated personally and privately rather than legally, was known as the Nisuin. This word comes from the word Nasa or Nasa, you could say, which means to lift up, to bear, to carry. He says it traditional Jewish weddings, after the ceremony, the bride and groom are lifted up on chairs by their guests to the accompaniment of exuberant singing and dancing. The concept in marriage is that we are called to support, to bear, and to lift up each other within our homes. I love this picture because in a world where it's really easy to see others cut down and lowered with our speech and with our language, with, with, with the looks that we give, our nonverbals, um, this picture at a wedding is of people coming around others and lifting them up and helping them bear and, and carry forth in the things in their lives. And too often in the church and in the home, it becomes a cut down fest rather than a, how can I lift you up? And how can I love you? In fact, Paul says something similar in Galatians. He says, brothers, I want you to carry each other's burdens. And he says that actually in the context of when there's been a grave sin that has kind of separated relationships, he says, I want you who are spiritual to bring restoration to those who are separated. And he says, I want you to be the ones who bear up. Here's one of the ways <coughs> that I believe God wants to work this into our lives. I want you to think about your, your home. I want you to think about the miniature temple in which you live. I want you to think about the greater body of Christ in which you live. I want you to ask God, God, who, do you, who can I lift up today? Who can I lift up through an encouraging word, through a smile? Who, who can I encourage wherever they're at in their walk? And, and maybe this even looks like you and I going home today and saying to our spouses, if we're married, or to our kids, even if they're grown up, saying, what's one way I can walk with you and I can lift you up? What, what, what's one way I can intercede for you about what God is working with in your life? I think small practice like that could bring great transformation to our homes, to our marriages, to our parenting, to the church community, and even to the city at large. Because when we become known as the people who lift up and who bear. We, we, we lift up and bear to restore people to God. And we, we don't restore them. God restores himself to them. But we become partners with God in this amazing work of grace. The same grace that we received that saved a wretch like us. How does God want you to be active in your role within your family? How does God want you to open your life and your family, your, your home, to the benefit of those around you? How does God want you to be as someone who bears up and lifts up those who are around? That's my challenge to you today as you go, as you consider these things. And you ask God for wisdom for what that looks like for you specifically. Pray with me, please. Our Father and our King, it's challenging to think about. It's challenging to think about how dependent we are on you because I confess, God, I'm a, I'm a pretty independent person. And yet, Lord, I, I give to you, we give to you 
our own self-sufficiency because we want to have the power of Christ in our life so that we can be people who lift one another up. We can be people who help restore one another to relationship with you and to relationship with one another. And God, we need your help. We need your spirit to lead and to guide us into the truth of what this means for our families today. Lord, teach us what it means to love the way you love. Teach us what it means to voluntarily yield ourselves for your purposes and for your glory. God, encourage our hearts to become active in our relationship with you. And God, where we are passive today, reveal that to us so that we might, with your help, have a new set of priorities based upon who you are and based upon who we are made in your image. God, we do not want to be the same next week as we are today. And so lead and guide us in your grace. Lead and guide us in your truth. Thank you for the all-sufficient merit that comes through Jesus Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we close? My friends, as you go out into your week, may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his face towards you. May you experience his peace. May you know you belong to the Lord as you trust in him today. You're dismissed.